This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Hey, welcome back into Play by Playcast, everybody. My name is Joel Godet. Thanks, as always, for the subscribe, the stream, the download. However, you're listening to this podcast. Of course, the podcast about Play by Play broadcasters for Play by Play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. My name is Joel Godet. I am your host. You can always find the podcast on social media at PXPCast on Twitter. I'm at Joel Godet on Twitter, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Or you can shoot me an email, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at BSU.edu. Our guest today is the voice of the Atlanta Falcons, Wes Durham. And we will get to Wes here in a second. Really good, really lengthy conversation with Wes. Uh, But before that, a little follow-up on last week. I told you I was going to Brazil and uh, went to Brazil. Left last Wednesday night. I left Wednesday night. I got there Thursday morning and then left there Monday night and got back here Tuesday morning. Broadcast the CrossFit Games regional round. So the round that sends in most regionals five people to the CrossFit Games the first week in August in Latin America, where I was, just one athlete goes to the CrossFit Games. One male, one female, and one team. And then the Meridian Regional, that's where it sends four. Uh, So that's where the math works out. Uh, But it was the first time I had had a chance to broadcast CrossFit. It was the first time I had broadcast anything outside of the United States. Uh, And it was an incredible experience. Didn't really know what to expect. Um, Didn't know what to expect in a lot of ways. Um, Culturally, from the production side, just in general. I, I did not know what I was walking into. It was a brand new experience. And uh, I I talked a lot in the last couple of weeks about my preparation for it, reaching out to all these athletes and trying to contact as many of them as possible, uh, reaching out via Facebook. I did wind up getting in touch with, I don't know, if there were 80 individuals, 40 men, 40 women, I probably got in touch with about 65 to 70 of them. And then if there were 30 teams... I probably got in touch with about, I don't know, 10 to 12 of those. So I had a little bit less information on the team side. Uh, but I felt really good and felt really equipped to, to go in and tell stories. And I think that was my biggest challenge this past weekend. You know, if I had been doing the Central Regional in Nashville, Tennessee, different approach. Because Matt Frazier is there. And Rich Froning is there on, on his team from CrossFit Mayhem. Uh, Brooke Wells won on the women's side. There's just more people that people are familiar with in CrossFit. So the, the challenge is a little different. But in the Latin American regional, uh, nobody knows who anybody is. So your job is really uh, not just to call the play-by-play of the events, but also to introduce 
people to everyone because nobody knows who Pablo Chalfoun is or Simona Quintana or Tata Habani or uh, or anybody, Andre Sanchez. So you have to put some backstory on all of these people. In addition to describing the events they're competing in, um, talking about why that's difficult, what's difficult about it, setting up your analyst well, um, and then physically calling the action of a uh, you know com- competitive competitive workout, an event, a test uh, are, are the words that we use to describe them. It, it was a it was a challenge in storytelling is what it really came down to. It was a challenge in a lot of respects about how well I could tell stories, how quickly I could tell stories, how I could fit them in, how I could bounce from those to uh, setting my analysts back up to talk about something else, oftentimes related to the story, oftentimes not related to the story. Uh, telling the, the background of athletes that were important to the events that were going on and telling stories that were important about athletes that were at some point in the competition not important to what was going on. The other thing that was really critical this past weekend is that when I was in journalism school, I was told, like we were all told uh, at Syracuse, that at some point in time, we weren't just play-by-play broadcasters. We were going to have to be news reporters. Like that, There comes that time in everybody's career where your reporter background and your news background comes in handy. And... Uh, that was, for me, this past weekend. It hasn't gotten a ton of coverage in the U.S. It's gotten, like, no coverage in the U.S. But it's a big deal in Brazil. And I didn't really know about it until I got down there. The first time I'd heard about it was last Wednesday. And it started last Monday. But there's a truck strike, and I believe it's currently still going on in Brazil. Like, more than, almost two weeks now of a truck strike where uh, truck drivers are protesting the rising cost of diesel fuel. Diesel fuel has doubled in two years in Brazil, thereabouts. And the truck drivers basically have had it. And they are on strike. And when I say that, that's not like a handful of truck drivers are on strike in Rio de Janeiro. That's like there are a million truck drivers on strike in the entirety of Brazil. And when I say they're on strike, I don't mean like they've refused to go to work. I mean like they have blockaded highways. In some instances, chaining trucks together and not allowing traffic to move. On more than 500 highways. Like this was a big deal. And it was one of those things where when you heard about it the first time, your reaction is like, oh, well, okay, I'm sure that thing will clean up. You know, they'll get that taken care of. And then as time went by, you're like, no, this is real. This is a, this is a big issue. And it affected CrossFit because we couldn't get any equipment. We had no equipment. There was no equipment. If you watch a CrossFit regional this weekend, you'll see there's a specific rig that they set up where you do your pull-ups and your rope climbs, and your handstand push-ups, and it looks very official. Uh, it's got a place where the name placard goes, so you can see who's in every lane. Uh, there's particular equipment you need to do a handstand walk. You have to walk over an obstacle upstairs and down a ramp. Uh, there's an assault runner, which is like a self-powered treadmill. Needed those. Uh, a rowing machine. Needed that. Uh, an assault bike, which is, you know, like a rower, but it's a bike. Uh, needed those, 
dumbbells, uh, boxes for box stepovers or box jumps, uh, barbells, weights, all of that stuff. Like, that's what you need for a CrossFit competition. All of it, like every last piece of it, was caught up in this truck strike blockade. So I show up on Thursday morning, and I walk into the arena, Arena Karaoke 1, where they played basketball in the Olympics in 2016, um, and there's nothing there. Like, there's not even a floor. There was no competition floor. And you're like, what is going to happen? So instantly you turn into, you know, news reporter guy. Because our first hit, we did a preview on a whip around that they posted on the internet and then used on, I think it was on CBSSports.com and it was on CrossFit.com. Instead of previewing the action in the regional and like, hey, we're looking for Brenda Castro to have a good weekend. We're talking about a truck driver strike. And you go into like fact finding mode and talking about what's going on in terms of CrossFit. And how they're finding equipment. The fact that the flooring, instead of being the competition floor for CrossFit, they found the fencing strips that were still around from the 2016 Olympics. And they laid those out and taped them together to create lanes that stretched from one side of the floor to the other in which the competition would take place. Uh, Had to talk about the fact that they were driving around Rio de Janeiro because you could get around in the city. Blockades didn't hurt you that way. And they were collecting equipment from each of the CrossFit affiliates. All right, we'll take your barbells and your dumbbells and your weight plates and uh, your boxes so we can have some box jumps. We'll take your rig, CrossFit Crown in Rio de Janeiro, had their rig disassembled. The whole thing that attaches to the ground or the wall and you do pull-ups on. They disassembled that and brought it to the arena. Um, And then, you know, obviously there were no assault runners. Those are hard to come by, and it's tough to get 20 of them. So the workouts and the events had to be adjusted and adapted. So in the course of broadcasting, not only am I telling you about what I'm seeing, and we're talking about the competition, but you have to constantly remind people why everything was different and dive into the truck driver strike. And every day... You know, read as many local news sources as you could, translate them from Portuguese, and tell people where the truck driver strike is now. Uh, Now that, you know, the truck driver strike is over, but the truck drivers are not agreeing with it. So they're continuing to strike. And the government is wanting to send in the military to clear the blockades. And a billion chickens might die because they can't get feed, And there's video of empty shelves in supermarkets. Um, And it even came up in a post-game interview because Pablo Chalfoun, who won on the men's side, uh, he's Brazilian. He's from Rio de Janeiro. And in his fifth event victory of the six events, uh, his post-event interview, he just, out of the blue, says, it's been a hell of a week for my country. And it's been awful what we've been going through. And all of a sudden, that opens a door into real life and the world and something that's newsworthy and not about CrossFit. So not only was I broadcasting something for the first time, and not only was that an amazing experience, but I also was broadcasting a news event in relation to what I was there for, which is something that's never happened in my career. 
uh, but something they always tell you inevitably will, and for me, did this past weekend. Also, you have to wear a Reebok shirt on your broadcast because it's a, you know, CrossFit Games are sponsored by Reebok. CrossFit sponsored by Reebok. They give you apparel to wear. Uh, the first two days, they gave me women's t-shirts. That was a little uncomfortable. You'll notice if you go back and look at the archives, uh, but we got it rectified in days uh, three and four. So, you know, your own personal obstacles. Sometimes you got to come over those too. Looked a little weird, felt a little funky, but uh, once we figured out it was because it was a women's t-shirt, um, that made it a lot easier to, you know, fix that problem. Quick aside. So that was CrossFit, and that was my trip to Rio de Janeiro, where I did get to be a tourist on Monday, by the way. Sometimes this job is cool. Sometimes we get to go to cool places. Sometimes it's Toledo, Ohio. No knock on Toledo. It's just a close city. Um, And sometimes it's Rio de Janeiro, which (laughs) did not expect that to be the case um, when I got into this, you know, a decade ago. Let's dive into it with Wes Durham today, a conversation that is a long one, and it starts with something I've wanted to ask Wes about for a long time. So let's begin with the Super Bowl. Not this past one, but the one before the historic come from behind win for the New England Patriots, of which Wes Durham was the broadcaster on the wrong side. Here's Wes Durham, the voice of the Atlanta Falcons. But in addition to that, a long time until 2013, the voice of Georgia Tech, and of course the son of Woody Durham, the legendary voice of North Carolina, who of course unfortunately passed away uh, just this past March from his battle with aphasia. Uh, a lot to talk to uh, West Durham about in regards to his dad, in regards to his career, and in regards to the technical sides of broadcasting, which we really dive into today. A lot of nitty gritty on this week's PXP cast with West Durham. <laughs> So if we can start with the Super Bowl, <laughs> um, <laughs> what was the agony and the ecstasy of, uh, of that moment for you, and, and how did you handle it? Um, you know, Joel, for me, the Super Bowl is kind of broken up into three parts. Um, the first part was <clears throat> the realization that you were going to do the game, okay? And you spend... You know, you, you kind of got to get comfortable in your own skin with what you're going to do, you know, because you know it's the biggest game in the Western Hemisphere, okay? I mean, there's there's just no getting around that. Um, it's also a game that is recorded for history. And the impact, I didn't understand that impact until an old program, di- program director who had worked with me in Atlanta who had been with Buffalo on their four straight Super Bowl runs called me the week before the week before the Super Bowl, so the week after the NFC Championship. And he said, hey, really enjoy it. It's a great experience, he said. And just remember, you know, they'll record this, and whatever you say will be played forever. (laughs) No pressure, though. And I went, thanks. And he goes, no, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. But just don't ever forget that. (laughs) And so that part, that first week after the NFC title game is kind of phase one. Phase two is when you start the preparation for the game, there's no human way to put everything down or to digest every possible thing about the game and the two teams and the history of the game and the history of the franchises and all that. So you really kind of have to set up what I call like an outside fence and say, okay, here are the things I'm really going to try and focus on in this game as it relates to the game. The historical stuff will take place as it unfolds. Ironically for us, 
that stuff started to, started to take place in the fourth quarter. And uh, fortunately for me, and I think fortunate for our broadcast, we have a really good booth, an incredible booth. I mean, Dave Archer and I have done the games for 14 years. This will be our 15th fall this season. Uh, my spotter, Chris Capo, has been with me for, let's see, 12 of the 14 years doing the Falcons. Uh, Greg Campbell, who does stats and research, sits on my left side, and he's been with me 12 years. And so we have really good synergy in the booth, which is important. Even the engineer, Miller Pope, has been an engineer in either Georgia Tech or the Atlanta Falcons since 1996. So we and our producer, Bo Morgan, has produced nine of the last 11 years of Falcons radio. So we have really good synergy is, is the short version of a long story. So when we got into the fourth quarter, when you start riding the emotional roller coaster, or in this case, going downhill fast, <laughs> um, you know, you kind of you, you have some comfort level because you're not doing the game with strangers, okay? And we're all kind of feeling the momentum shift. Uh, for me, it happened when Atlanta recovered the onside kick and didn't do anything with it, and I felt like then that that was just gonna that was pouring gas. For New England, that was just going to energize them beyond belief. A lot of people point to the high tower sack fumble of Ryan. For me, when they recovered the onside kick and didn't do anything with it, I felt like then there was trouble. Um, and then at the end, the the last part of this is it goes back to a conversation I had with my dad. Um, and good thing this is a podcast because this is a little involved. My last broadcast my senior year in college was a basketball broadcast. And literally this is what happened at the end. Elon in an NAIA district game led high point college at the time. Now high point university by three points with about two seconds left in the game. Okay. And high point has fouled Elon and a guy going to the free throw line who was a classmate of mine and still a friend uh, had earlier in the night seen his streak of 38 consecutive free throws snapped. And he goes to the line for uh, one and one because this is back before the 10 shot or 10 foul, two shot rule. And he missed the front end of a one and one. So he's missed his second free throw in what 40 some attempts, right? And the kid who got the rebound for high point turned around. And weak-handed, he was a right-handed shooter, he threw the ball left-handed to the other end of the floor, and it went in. And the game went to overtime, and Elon lost by five in the overtime. And that's how my college broadcasting career ended. And that was the week before the ACC tournament. So my dad had come to Greensboro to broadcast the ACC tournament. That was 20 minutes from Elon. My dad and I had lunch at the tournament, and inevitably this game came up. And my dad gave me an unbelievable piece of advice and wisdom, I guess, that day at lunch when he said, you know, you stay in this business. There were two pieces. The first one was you stay in this business long enough, you're going to see everything once. And that's proven to be more true than he ever imagined. The second thing is, is something that I always kind of think of, especially in games like the Super Bowl, is win or lose, you have a job to do and you have to get the broadcast home. And you have to be able to qualify it or quantify it or however describe it to your listening audience or your television audience or whatever the case may be. 
win or lose, if you're representing a team or just even doing a game, you've still got to get that broadcast to the house. And sure enough, here I was in the Super Bowl, the biggest broadcast that many think I've done uh, in terms of spectacle. And I go back to something my dad told me my senior year in college. And uh, I think about it a lot now, especially since March when he passed away and, and the conversations we had. But um, they rang true that night. And I literally the last four minutes of that game was thinking of my dad when thinking of what he said. You stay in it long enough, you'll see everything once. And win or lose, you've got to get it to the house. And at the end, after James White scored the touchdown in overtime, the we go to break and we come back. And I'm responsible for summarizing the game. That's the part of the broadcast I have to handle every night. And so the first thing I said after the commercial break was, unfortunately, tonight is a night where history will probably not look very kindly upon the Atlanta Falcons for a long time. And I, that was the best way I could capture it because I felt like no matter what kind of season Atlanta had had to get to that point, history was not going to be kind to the Falcons for a long time. And I, I still feel that. I still don't think that history will be kind. Even if Atlanta were to go, Joel, and win a Super Bowl in the next three to five years, I'm still not sure history is going to be very kind to Atlanta because of what happened in Super Bowl 51. The emotion of it uh, and handling the emotion of it, because I even, you know, I feel like I am a detached sports fan uh, in a lot of respects and that I, I, I'm able to look at things fairly level-headedly. Um, and I always say that I've never, won a, I, I've never won a game in my life. I've never lost a game in my life. I'm mm-hmm. just there to broadcast it. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, when, when Ball State gets beat, like, I'm pissed. Like, I, I, I have no <laughs> skin in the game, but I'm just like, sure. oh, that sucked. Um, what was it like for you with that mindset and that mentality of, you know, whatever happens, you got to get it to the house, um, and balancing that with the aspect of being the voice of the Falcons and, and obviously the, the upset nature of, you know, you're part of a group that wanted desperately to win and, and, uh, and, and balancing the emotion with the, the kind of newsman in there? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think for me it, it falls under a category of, you know, we're – like you're you're tied to Ball State, win or lose, and you know another great line my dad always had was nobody remembers a call from a broadcast where you got the hell beat out of you, okay? <laughs> and and that's pretty true. I mean, you you and I probably could find uh, several games where we felt like we had a good broadcast, but the team we were broadcasting for didn't win. You know, I mean, Ball State may have lost. Uh, well, be honest, you lost several football games last year, but you may have had some good broadcast in there, right? It just didn't. It went on a winning night, right? <laughs> yeah. Fair? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> so that that happens a lot in our business. So for me, winning and losing, sure, it's great when you win. I mean, everybody wants to win, but the math, as I like to say often, math doesn't work for everybody. You I mean, somebody's got to lose. And so, uh, you know – to me, the Super Bowl, yes, it was extremely difficult that night. It's a numbing feeling after the Super Bowl. You're just kind of in a bit of a daze, if you will. And then the next morning you wake up and you go, well, I'll turn on Sports Center." No, I won't. <laughs> you know, and yeah. you don't turn on the TV. But I will say this about my business and me personally in this business. Fans probably are going to take it a lot harder than I am. Because I process and move on pretty quick. 
the Super Bowl for me, by the time the plane landed back in Atlanta from Houston, uh, my next focus was, okay, I got to get home and pack and get my basketball stuff together because I've got a TV game Wednesday night in Miami between Virginia Tech and Miami. So by the time Tuesday I went and got on the plane to leave Atlanta and fly to Miami, I, I was, let's put it this way, I was over it as much as I was going to be over it, and yet I still had it on my DVR till last July when I watched it for the first time. Wow. So, you know, and there are other people who took a lot longer. My wife, uh, Victoria, it took a long time. I mean, I'm not sure she was over it by July. She still may not be over it. I don't know. We haven't talked about it in about a year. But, um, and I think it's harder on fans. I really do, and I empathize with that because they're the you know they're the uh, the lifeline to to which we have jobs, and so I, I respect that, and I and I feel for fans. I mean, you know, my son had some friends in high school with him a year ago before he went to college, whose parents you know we saw on a regular basis last spring and and you know one of one of his buddy's dads was a a lifelong Atlanta who spent a lot of money drove to Houston went to the game and he said he and his wife got in the car after the game was over and rather than stay in Houston that night they just got in the car and drove to Atlanta and so yeah I mean I understand how fans go through it but for me to answer your question I, I can flush it pretty quick I'm I'm a day or two I mean, when I was at Georgia Tech and in 2004, they played for the national championship against UConn and lost and really were not in the ball game at all that night at, in San Antonio. Um, you know, we were on the plane the next day coming home, and a day later I was fine with it. Um, and I guess, I'm, I guess I've kind of been in the business long enough to, to take those hits. Uh, same way, even when I was doing the team cast, in Houston for North Carolina for Turner Sports and Chris Jenkins hit the three to beat Carolina for Villanova. Growing up a Carolina fan, yeah, I would have liked to have seen Carolina win. And but I realized too, I sat and watched one of the great shots in NCAA tournament history that night too. So, in some ways, I felt fortunate. It, it'd be nice to be on the winning end of one of those type games, but it just <laughs> hadn't happened yet. How about on the broadcast side of it too? Uh, I always like to think that I've got a really good pissed off touchdown call. Um, like, a God, all right, fine. They scored. Um, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, yeah. that was a really good play, but it didn't go for me. Um, right. in the moment, how did you handle broadcasting really history, but that wasn't in your favor? Oh, I think you temper it now. I mean, I'm not going to be very excited. James White scored, um, you know, at all. And I wasn't excited that, you know, New England had drove the field and converted the two-point play either. I mean, that didn't do anything for me mm. um, because that was kind of, in my opinion, the last straw. Um, I look at it, you know, I think if you're broadcasting for a brand, it's pretty – a team, school, whatever the case may be, in the first 15 or 20 seconds, people can tell that, Joel. I, I mean, if they can't – now, you're going to be a fair broadcaster. You're going to see it, you know, maybe shaded a little bit in the colors of the group you're broadcasting for, but you're certainly going to be respectful. You know, they're, they're not that many out-and-out homers anymore. Um, if there are, I just haven't heard them. But um, I think you're respectful of it, but you're not going to celebrate James White's touchdown to win the Super Bowl. Yeah. I mean, that's not going to happen on the Atlanta Falcons broadcast. Bob Sosie and those cats are going to knock it dead, though, on the Patriots show. But uh, – 
there that's not happening on our show. So the temperament is always going to be very different. And in television, to answer your question about Jenkins three at, uh, in Houston that night, by the way, that was the same building. So I don't need to be in that <laughs> building anymore. Um, but I, um, you know, when Jenkins cut the cut the shot loose, I was so fortunate to be part of a great crew that night. Uh, Brendan Haywood, who's who was the analyst with me on the team stream, says, "Oh no, oh no, oh no!" When he cuts it loose, and then after he hits the shot, then it's Scott Cockrell and Renardo Lowe who are the producer and director in the truck. They just cut the shots, man. I I didn't have to say anything. Yeah, they could do all the magic after that. I mean. Uh, that's in some ways, that's the best way to handle it. If you're on the losing end of that type deal is to just lay out because really in television, the visual can be shown in radio. That's where you've got to, you know, again, qualify, quantify, capture the emotions verbally as to, as to what's transpired. I want to go back to the, the marked for history side of things um, that you talked about going into the Super Bowl as well. And uh, everybody always says that, you know, you, you don't want to script out anything that you're going to say. Um, right. And, and, and you know, then we had Larry Colmas on here a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about doing the Triple Crown and, and doing something that hadn't happened in 37 years and, and literally kind of thinking exactly what he wanted to say. And and there's a difference in that, like, for that, either the horse is going to win or it's not going to win. And, like, mm-hmm. for the most part, it's either going to, like, unless it trips and falls, like, it, it is what it is. You got one of two choices. Um and in, in in a lot of other sports, that is not the case. There are a myriad of number of ways that things can end and, and ways things can unfold. Uh, but did you have an idea of, I don't know, for two weeks, did you think like, hey, if the Falcons win the Super Bowl in this manner, I might say this or I might say that? Or, or how did it weigh on you in terms of this is going to be marked for history? If something goes a certain way, I want to make sure I'm ready for it. Well, I think what you want to do is you want to be organized. And it goes back to me in terms of preparation. Did I script something? Did I did I have the you know proverbial index card? No, no. I had I thought about it, not really, because I didn't want to let myself go there because I thought that would take away from the genuine nature of it, if you will. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, I didn't want to have something written. On, the most disappointed I've ever been about a line I really loved was to find out that it was scripted because I didn't think it was. And then I found out, oh God, I found out like 15 years later it was scripted. (laughs) And I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And it really bothers me because while I think uh, I understand why people will do that, I still think with radio especially, there is that raw human emotion that you were talking about earlier that you have to try to convey. And I think it's important. I think that's why you are the voice of somebody. You're supposed to convey that raw human emotion that those fans, coaches, and players are feeling. And to me, that's kind of the way I thought of the Super Bowl, that if Atlanta won, I was going to have to find something about that game that would convey that that feeling. Um and me writing it on an index card on Thursday before I went to Houston on Friday wasn't going to solve that. Um, could I think about it? Sure. But did I go to the booth on Sunday with an idea? No. Uh, didn't in 2004 with Georgia Tech either. Um, had Georgia Tech won the national championship that night, I have no idea what I would have said. 
But I think it's best for me, at least in my personality as an announcer, not to have it. If I did, I'd feel obligated to get it in right at the top. I'd probably jack it up somehow and then feel like I'd really messed it up rather than just going clean. And I know there are different schools of thought of that, and I respect it. But to me, I I would rather go just straight flush from the cuff if I could. If I can dial this uh, back to the very beginning – for you and we'll kind of work uh work from the recent to the the, the original um okay i i had a thought as i was driving uh into work this morning um just about thinking about this and um i, I was listening to another interview you had done and you talked about you know you following your father's footsteps and your brother being in the industry as well and mm-hmm. uh, sure. and, and obviously there's a there are a lot of families not a lot, but there are a handful of families like that as well. Um, mm-hmm. And then I even thought about myself and like my grandmother's a teacher. My grandfather's a teacher. My mother, my father, they're both teachers. My brother swore he would never be one. He's a teacher. If I wasn't doing <laughs> this, I would probably be a teacher. Um, sure. What is it that and, and this could be a general thing and maybe there's something that that works particularly to your situation as well that lends to, you know, like I grew up around this with my father and subconsciously I wound up doing this uh, or was it one of those things where like from an early age, it was like, no, I'm going to do this independent of uh, who my family is and what I'm around every day. No, I think for me, I think we all get there differently. Um, You know, for instance, one of my best friends in this business is Stan Cotton, who's at Wake Forest. And we've known each other since 1984. Okay. My first broadcast as a freshman at Elon, they played Carson Newman. Stan was either a year or two out of Tennessee at the time and was doing Carson Newman's games on the radio. And one of the things I learned from my dad and following him around, you know, football and basketball, so to speak, emptying trash and doing whatever with Carolina games, was that you, you kind of always speak to the other announcer. You know, you just kind of, you know, hey, I'm Wes. If you need anything, let me know. Happy to help you. Da-da-da. Welcome. You know, there's the bathroom. There's the Cokes. You know, that kind <laughs> of thing. Um, and you know what I mean. Yeah. We all do it. Oh, yeah. um, so Stan was a really good high school quarterback in Knoxville at Farragut High School, recruited by Auburn, and unfortunately had a pretty bad knee injury. And – didn't have any college offers at the end and ended up going to Tennessee. I uh, played high school football with Bill Bates, who later had a great pro bowl career with the Cowboys. And anyway, so Stan comes to it as a former athlete. Okay. And he got into broadcasting because his playing career ended. I got into broadcasting because I realized my playing career was going to end, <laughs> not by injury, <laughs> by ability. Um, I, you know, when I was 12 years old, I was six feet tall and 185 pounds. Okay, and love basketball. In fact, the secret sauce to West Durham is he only played one year of organized football, and that was my sophomore year in high school. Why didn't I play after my sophomore year? Hey, I got an internship at a radio station, so I didn't play any more football. Yeah, because I worked in the summers and I couldn't go work out in football. Um, but I came home at fourteen, Joel, from going to a couple different basketball camps, one in which I got dunked on by a kid younger than me. (laughs) And I told my dad, I said, dad, I don't think this basketball thing's going to go much further. Um, And he said, well, what do you want to do? And this was kind of like one of those Americana dinner table conversations. And I said, I think I want to get into, I I see how much fun 
what you do is. I know how much you enjoy it. And at this time, he was um, still a sports anchor. But I didn't realize it at the time that he was almost through being a sports anchor and was going to be working for the multimedia rights company that owned Carolina's broadcast and be an announcer full-time, essentially. And so it germinated from there. And by the time I was 16, after two years of standing behind him in the football booth at home games and, you know, most basketball games that I could get to on, you know, non-late starts on school nights type deal, I would stand behind him in Carmichael Auditorium and watch Carolina play, and I would stand behind him in Keenan Stadium for most home games. In fact, I can, you know, I haven't sat in the stands in Chapel Hill to watch a football game in Lord knows how long. Um but that's where I really caught the bug because here's why I had the, I had the unique insight, Joel, of seeing it being built during the week at home and then watching it unfold on Saturdays, you know, watching the charts come together, watching the boards, watching the prep, seeing the media guides, reading the notes, watching them at that time, what we'd now do on the internet. He used to subscribe to like, he'd get like eight Sunday papers on Monday. And he'd bring them home, and all of a sudden, here come the articles being clipped out of all the papers. And he would have these folders with articles in them. And and we used to talk about preparation. And then, you know, the coup de grace for me was we would ride together to the games. Uh, just him and me. He'd drive, and I'd sit in the passenger seat. And he would hand me the depth chart of the opposing team. And his goal was that he would know the name and number on the two deep offense and defense for the opponent Carolina was playing that day. And I can remember riding to Keenan Stadium from our home in Cary in 1981. I am 15 years old. Clemson. Carolina's playing Clemson, and he goes through the entire Clemson depth chart, two deep, offensive line, receivers, punters, holders, long snappers, everybody. And I'm like, wow. Okay, I'm in. I'm in. I want to do this. <laughs> and it was just amazing. And Carolina lost the game that day, by the way, 10-8. to 8. And I still, to this day, I, I can't tell you anything about the game other than the play that, you know, it was a big turnover for Carolina in the second half. I can remember that play. But the one thing I can remember from that day is my dad chronicling the one and two deep of Clemson's offense and defense and special teams. Uh, how did he do that? And and have you learned the the tricks to being able to hmm. do that? Because I I mean I, I there's no way that I can do that. I don't I don't even learn the offensive line. I just kind of figure those out as I need to for the most part. Um, right. What's the trick that that he used that he he nailed it down so well? Well, the thing that that he told me when I started trying to do it in college, and it took a while. I mean, it took me, you know, every year it would take a little less time to do it. Like in college, when I did it, it would take five weeks. I mean, I had no clue for five (laughs) weeks. I mean, it was, I had to build the charts and then hope for the best. And then, um, you know, I did college games without a spotter. It was disastrous. Um, But um, really, the secret is they can only give certain numbers to certain players at that time in college, you know, uh, like 50s, 60s, and 70s. And there were no duplicate numbers like there are now. This whole recruiting thing of we're going to have four different twos on the roster, well, that's just <laughs> awful. Um, you know, I, there are um, there were certain rules that you had. There were exceptions to the rule, but basically that's one of the ways that, that he and I would kind of go through it. And I was amazed at how he processed it 
but you know, in the end, there could only be certain numbers in certain places. For me, as I got older, um, and I was out of football now. Remember, I didn't do football for three years because my first job out of college was a basketball-only situation. Mm. Um, so when I got back into football in 1991 at Marshall, and I haven't been through a fall now without it, um, that made the process it, – it happened a lot quicker for me when I got to going at Marshall. I mean, by I was at Marshall one year. Uh, 1992, I was at Vanderbilt, and really that process from 92 on, it's it's been expedited every year. And I, it's a challenge. The NFL is the one that truly they can only give certain numbers to certain players now. Only in 2004 did the NFL start awarding, uh, you know, numbers that start with one for wide receivers. Um, that didn't happen prior to 2004. Unfortunately, 04 was my first year in the league. So I could I could grow with that, if you will. But the process is basically if you learn kind of how they set up and you create a memorization system, it has to be yours. You have to create that, you know, certain guys are here and that's their number. But then you have to also have the ability after the game is over to get rid of it mentally and then start new. That's the hard part because um, you have to go find a way to do it. Television's a little less demanding on the memorization. You can probably get by with skill, but on offense, but on defense, you kind of got to know the rules. And like I say, you know, with all the duplicate numbers nowadays, it gets a little tricky. But I think that in, in the pro side, it's a lot easier. Pro side's a lot easier. It's a math equation on players that play because there are just not that many players in a pro game compared to a college game. So, but it's it's really one of his one of his real keys to the preparation. And that's why I think, you know, his, the way he went about doing it, he was the best I've ever seen get ready for a game. And I think it was one of the things that made him as good as he was for 40 years, for sure. How long did it take you? And maybe the answer is it hasn't yet. Uh, how long did it take you to become West Durham and not feel like Woody's son <laughs> in this industry? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know the way the uh, Mark Packer, who does the Sirius XM ACC morning show with me, we, we, we're convinced that the only reason we got the jobs because he's Billy's <laughs> son and I'm Woody's son. Um, no, we, uh, I, I don't know that Joel. I, you know, for me, I've never been ashamed, embarrassed, or, um, you know, or, or anything other than proud to be Woody Durham's son. Well, I guess was there pressure to that though? Like, how long? How long did it take you to feel like you were who you were and you weren't looked at for being a mm, Durham? I don't know that. I mean, I, I don't know that. You know, because in some ways, I hope to be representative of his legacy. Sure. Okay. So I don't know that I'm. I think of myself. You know, look, I think I've done some really good things in my career, and I've been very blessed to work with a lot of great people and be affiliated with a lot of great things like Georgia tech for 18 years and Vanderbilt and the Falcons since 04. And now with Raycom and Fox on the regional side. And, you know, I, I think that, I think my brand personally is solid. Um, you know, I wasn't out trying to be my dad. I was just trying to have a good career. Uh, the one thing I didn't want to do, and I still don't want to do to this day is I wouldn't want to embarrass my dad. You know, I wouldn't want to embarrass or, give anybody a reason to believe that the only reason I got the job was because I was his son because, and it's funny because I've talked to other guys who are in the same kind of spot, Ryan McGee, who works for ESPN. His dad is a, a former football official and university president, very distinguished career. 
and he was Jerry McGee's son. Yeah. Uh, Brian Kersey is the supervisor of ACC basketball officials. He was on the floor for 20-some years, and Brian is Jess Kersey's son, who was a great NBA official. Um, uh, we talk about it all the time. We're the son of somebody, um, but I, I think we all understand who we are from our own personality and our own professional work, but we also don't want to embarrass you know, our parent either. Um, and I would say that about anybody, whether it's somebody who's been in the business for as long as I have or somebody just getting started, I think their number one goal would be to tell you they don't want to embarrass their father in the case of, you know, these guys that are announcers. Um, they certainly respect those careers, but at the same time, I, I think most of us, Dave Neal, whose dad was Bob Neal, who you may remember from the old Superstation days with the NBA and some of their NFL coverage, Dave lives in Atlanta, and we were just together at a charity golf event, and we talk about how fortunate we were because we probably entered this business with a, a better understanding of the pros and cons than most. Um, because, as you know, nobody goes through this thing clean. There's there's highs and lows in this business, and I feel very blessed that my dad kind of gave me a roadmap of how to handle some of that sometimes. In good ways and bad ways. And when he made a mistake, he would he would tell me, hey, I made that mistake. And when I've made mistakes, I told him, I shouldn't have done that. I should have, you know, handled this particular situation. It doesn't have anything to do with the broadcast. It could be something you're doing in your professional relationships or whatever the case may be. And so I, am I West Durham? Probably. There, you know, the interesting part is my dad's been retired seven years now. Um you know, his legacy for 40 years at Carolina was so good, and he had so many great moments that at the end of the day, I think he's so comfortable with the way his career ended that he could stand on that, and hopefully the work I'm doing is allowing me to stand on my legacy, if if that's something that's even possible given 23 years now in the Atlanta market. What was it like the first time you called the same game? <laughs> It was like it was. I, it, it was October fourteenth, nineteen ninety five. Not that I remember. Uh, and Carolina and Georgia Tech are playing football. And the way the broadcast booth set up at Grant Field, Joel, he was right next door to me. <laughs> and so I'd look through this glass window, and there was my dad. And oh, I was nervous, man. Oh, I was nervous because I felt like if I did something wrong, you know, there was going to be this guy come around the corner and go, did you really say that or something <laughs> like that? Um, but we had a great game and Georgia Tech won the game. So my dad was really competitive. He wanted Carolina to win all the time. And a lot of people that heard him who weren't Carolina fans would probably go, oh, I knew he was a Carolina homer. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, uh, it, it worked so well to just, have that emotion of my dad and I are doing the same game. And really for the next 15 years after that, that first year, Georgia Tech won all three. They won the football game and both basketball games. How about that? I mean, I thought I was never going to be allowed in the house. Um, <laughs> but the next 15 years were just a real, real treat. And then when my kids were born in April of 1999, my twins, um, we had the 2000 – uh, won ACC basketball tournament at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. And my ex-wife brought our kids to the to the tournament. And um, we, my mom and dad got to be at the ACC tournament with their grandchildren, the only grandchildren they have. And 
I remember that as much about our family as I do who won the tournament, how the games went, whatever the case may be. Sure. But it was always fun to to do games with my dad. Those were very, very special to me. And uh, they mean a lot now. They meant a lot then, but they mean much more now to me. It, the prep side of things obviously is a, is a big part of, of who he was that we talked about. But from a, mm-hmm. a strictly on-air standpoint in terms of if you're a fan that flipped on a, a radio and we're listening to him, uh, what do you feel made him so good? And how does that now uh, still impact who you are as a broadcaster, what you learn? Kind of what did you take from that to say, like, this is my outline from what I know that is so good that I'm going to start to construct myself? Well, number one, he was the voice of the Tar Heels. And so you knew Carolina would be covered from top to bottom. Okay. Um, you know, hometown storylines, tidbits, nuggets of information, things like that. Um, I think because he grew up a Carolina fan, he went to school at Chapel Hill. I think there was a innate ability for historical recall. Okay. So I think that that's one of the things that, that made him a very, very unique person to do North Carolina. The second thing about my dad was that he had grown up in the ACC. So when he started doing Carolina, he had come from television. My dad did the ACC television package of basketball before he did Carolina's games. Um, And actually, when he went to Carolina, it was part and parcel because Carolina was one of the bigger broadcasts in the country. And believe it or not, it was a better job than doing television. Now, how strange is it where we are now, right? (laughs) Um but when he went there, he already had a pretty strong working relationship from doing the television package and working as a sports anchor at the time in Greensboro that he was able to slide right in and tie everything together. So I think what probably, you know, the, the highest compliment I think you can be paid is when somebody has a choice to listen to a broadcast and they choose you, Okay. And I can't tell you the number of times, especially since he passed away in March and even really in the years before that, but more so uh, here in the last couple of months, to hear from people who say, well, I grew up a state fan, but I used to love to listen to your dad. Mm. Well, that, I mean, come on now. That's the highest compliment you can get, right? Yeah. Is that, you know, somebody is genuinely not going to listen to the other broadcast, even though they're a fan of that school because they want to hear the other guy. And so, to me, I think that's what made him unique. I think the fact he grew up in a real small town uh, outside of Charlotte, played high school football, knew how important it was to the people when they went to church on Sunday, when the announcers of the games that people from Albemarle had played in the day before, like there was uh, the Knotts brothers who played at Duke, and people would go to church on Sundays the next day in Albemarle, and they'd say, hey, did you hear – did you hear the announcer of the Duke game uh, talk about Albemarle? You know, that kind of thing. My dad loved the the fact that he could incorporate hometowns. That was important to him. Um, and it's important to me. And I think because you never know, there's always somebody, especially in the way, you know, technology has taken these broadcasts now, that I've gotten to a point in the NFL where if there's a kid who may have played college football outside the state of Georgia, but he's from the Atlanta area, I rarely mention the college. I'll mention the high school. Hmm. I'll mention the fact that, you know, um, I'm trying to think of somebody off the top of my head, and I'm, I'm doing a horrible job here in, in 
May and June in the off season of recall. But, um, but you know, a kid who plays high school football in the state of Georgia, I'm more likely to mention his high school than I am his college when the Falcons play that particular team. Interesting. Um, what else beyond that do you like? When you turn on a radio or you turn on a television, uh, what's good? Mm-hmm. What do you want to hear first and foremost? And, and what catches your ear as something that isn't just good but is something that is uh, beyond, so to speak? Well, I think we all recognize, you know, like today in our industry, I think we all recognize brilliance. You know, we, we recognize what is good and, and kind of what is great. Like, it's easy to say Doc Emmerich is great, okay? Well, why is he great? The number one reason he's great is he has unbelievable command of the English language, okay? His command of the English language in that sport, in my opinion, makes him maybe the most gifted announcer of our generation. And combine that with the fact that in the way that game moves, he's a great storyteller. I mean, think about the things. I, I don't watch hockey at all, if if any, during the course of the year. But when the Stanley Cup playoffs are on and he's doing the game, I'm watching it. And I'm not watching it because I'm pulling for Vegas or pulling for Washington. I'm watching it because I think you can glean something in this business if you continue to, to watch people work. You know, am I looking for another way to say the word pass? Well, he gives me 51 other ways to say it. You know, um, but I'm also looking for the way he does a game, describes the game, and also incorporates storylines. Because, as you know, in doing television like you have, the game itself is important, the stats are important, but also the reason people watch is the storylines. How can you develop compelling storylines? He's got an innate ability to not only command the language as the game unfolds, but he also has a great feel for when to incorporate stories. And mentioned, you know, that a player may have played in Medicine Hat or Moose Jaw, or maybe he grew up in the desert in Arizona and now was playing in, you know, wherever Vegas or whatever the case may be. I just, I find his talent to be, uh, to be really, really unique. And I think it's important to have favorites too, Joel. I think you ought to, if, if you've been in this business any ilk of time, I think you ought to have three or four guys that you really, you know, like to watch or listen to or whatever the case may be. And, and I always try and do that. I mean, I, I think it's important to, to listen to other people's work because, you know, not all the ideas that you have for a broadcast have to be originated by you. You can take things and, you know, and you and I've talked before, I'm happy to share information with people about how I do certain things. Um, and, you know, if there's things they do that I like, I'll, I'll look at that and maybe incorporate it in stuff I do. I, I don't think there's any one true way to do any of this in our business, to be honest. Uh, how do you expand your command of the language? Is it, sim- <laughs> I mean, is it watching other guys? I mean, do you, do you read a certain way? Uh, I've thought about like reading a dictionary as bland as that mm-hmm. sounds, but you never know. Um, what are tricks you have to, to try to grow that vocabulary? Well, I think, you know, there's uh, there's all sorts of things you can do. I, I think of just different ways you can say, like for me, the word is pass, okay, because obviously I'm doing as much football as I am of anything else. And if I just continue to say Matt Ryan on three-step drop and he passes the ball to the right side to Julio Jones to gain a six, it'll be second and four. That gets pretty boring after a while. So how many different ways can you say the word pass? 
how many different ways can you say the word hit, tackle, grab, rebound, uh, dribble, you know, those type things. I mean, rush, run, block, collide, you know, I mean, you just got to kind of improvise your language. And I think just through normal conversation, sometimes you can pick up on words. Um, you know, like there's a, there's a word that's kind of picked up in the last decade in football spins, Boy, he can really spin it. Okay. So I was listening to a, an old tape, actually, uh, helping my mom clean out some things at my parents' house. And there was an old tape my dad had of football broadcast from the 1960s. And I can't even remember the game, but the guy said, and, you know, Jones drops back and spins it out for 10 yards. Hmm. And it was caught by such and such. Well, that's a, that's a pretty clever way to use the word. And now all of a sudden here, what, 50 years later, you know, boy, he can really spin it. Well, we brought that word back in, in some ways, I guess. So I think of it like that. I don't – thesauruses and all those things, sure, I think they can help. But I think they've got to be – again, I go back to kind of like the calls at the end of the games. It's got to be genuine. It can't be premeditated. So you can certainly think of the words. Um, you know, when Bob Rondo was wrapping up his career at Washington, somebody at IMG copied down all the terms he uses for different things. Uh, the guy who kind of boards their games. And uh, he sent me a copy of it because I wanted to see it. I'm, 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 a, I'm a geek for that kind of stuff, I guess. Um, I'm a geek for charts and all that. I want to see everybody's chart. Let me see your chart. I want to, you know, see what I can, you know, Joel, bring me your chart. I want to see what I can steal off the Ball State chart, you know, um, that kind of thing. And so I think the same thing about phrases, too. What can you, what can you pick that, you know, makes you sound better, communicate better? To me, it's really about two things. It's information and entertainment. You're informing the viewer, the listener. You're trying to entertain them to keep them involved in your game. And, and that's really what it comes down to. How about the storytelling side of it? Uh, how do you get better at that? Or how do you do it as well as you do it now? Um, what makes Doc so good uh, at, at weaving it? Well, to me, I think that when he does hockey and Mike Tirico did football for ESPN and now to a degree with NBC when he does it, I think the the trick there is, and we all, you know, work to be as good as we can in this industry, is how to incorporate the analyst. And I think Emmerich and Eddie Olchek just have this unbelievable balance and rhythm together. And I think that's where the stories really germinate. With with me and and Dave Archer during the Falcons games, we've worked so long together now that we don't even have to look at each other during a game. And he'll step in and I'll step in. And then I may pose a question to him as the team breaks a huddle. He then, I mean, we have a rhythm in a broadcast where we can do stories like he'll talk about the movement of the safety. Um, we'll talk about, you know, for instance, you know, Taylor Gabriel last year, was he getting as many touches as he was in 2016? No, why not? Here's why. Um, you know, that kind of thing. I, I think you've got to have some rhythm to the broadcast. I think the more reps you do with the, a specific analyst that obviously is going to help. I think the other part about it is if it's radio, I think it's okay to have storyline meetings to talk about at the top. Hey, is there anything you want to get into today? Well, here's what I've got. What do you have? Uh, I think that's all part of the preparation in a broadcast. Um, you know, Dave and I do that. You know, we have a keys to the game segment like most broadcasts do in football on Sundays. And one of the things we've talked about before that is, Hey, is there anything in particular you want me to lead you with 
that you've got here you want to you want to get into and i think that's important communication is our business but you have to communicate about what your broadcast is going to be it's not necessarily a script but it is a guidepost for kind of how you want the broadcast to start once the game starts it's open-ended i mean it can go any way you want uh or any way possible in some respects like the super bowl and you got to be able to you got to be able to have those checks and balances along the way. I think I think Tariko and Gruden were very good, and I thought Mike was an excellent straight man for John going off the deep end a little bit on you know tactics and <laughs> strategies and things like that. I mean, think about it. When he started with the Spider Two Wild Banana, <laughs> I mean, what was the percentage of people in the country that knew what he was talking about? Probably very few, right? If any, <laughs> but he, he did it enough and was entertaining enough doing it that people eventually figured out that Spider 2 Y Banana was a route package off a of formation. And so, you know, it, it works out it works out that everybody kinda learns something along the way. And really that's kind of what we're doing anyway. The other two things, Joel, that I, I don't think people take into account is television is really an analyst game. Um I mean you've done both now. You you it's it's it really belongs to the analyst in television. Because the uh, the unknown of radio is that the play-by-play guy has to describe most of it, and the analyst kind of uh, you know facilitates behind that. In TV, the analyst really controls the game from the why, and because everybody can see what else happens, and really it's the play-by-play job on television. I think to just kind of keep it basic. Uh, punch the call maybe of the important parts and, you know, add to the storyline, but let the analysts break apart what you're seeing and why you're seeing it. Uh, let me ask you about Spider 2 Y Banana uh, for a second. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and, but I mean it from the standpoint of how you incorporate that type of stuff on a football broadcast as well. And, and, I, and, and I mean breaking down uh, the physical – these are plays. This is a package. This is that, and and getting into the nitty gritty of the the you know the football ops side of it, so to speak. Sure. Uh, and sure. and being able to explain that in a way that is understandable to people, how much of that you do versus how much of it is is truly just nuts and bolts. You know, Roddy White's over here, Matt Ryan's in the in the pistol, mm-hmm. and 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 finding the right balance of doing that, uh, and and kind of what you think your job is along those lines. Well, I think you have to be careful, and you you have to be careful in this sense. There's enough information out there about the National Football League that you could drown trying to, you know, incorporate it. You know, I mean, there's just an enormous amount of information as it relates to the analytics. Um, I get a book every year. I order it online and download it on my iPad and take it with me. It's a Football Outsiders Almanac or something like that, and – they break down the percentages of plays based on formations. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, I mean it's 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 heavy duty, and I get the book only because they do a capsule of first down run to pass balance, third down defensive balance. How many? What percentage of third down plays were they in nickel? What percentage was a team in X or you know whatever the case may be. So on radio, I can communicate that. If I were doing television, it would be a graphics machine because I could send it to our font coordinator, and all of a sudden they could start building graphics of, you know, for the for the crawl at the bottom, the lower third stuff or the slab stuff that they do on TV. That would be tremendous. 
But see, those people who do NFL games on networks, they've got all those people. They've got the stats and research and information people that build that kind of thing. They don't need the football outsiders book that I pay 20 bucks for and download. Okay. (laughs) I mean, but for me, that kind of stuff helps. Now, once the year gets going, teams develop their own personalities and then it really becomes about trends. Okay. So early in the first five weeks of the season, you can refer back to last year's material or last year's tendencies in some respects. And you got to remember, too, we're, we're assuming that the coach is back and the coordinators are back. If they've changed coordinators, which, golly, it seems half the league does from year to year, then how does all that you know work itself through? So you got to be careful how you process that information. But I think the presentation of it on radio is fine. I think where you get in trouble in radio is, you know, a lot of people talk, you know, I'm a zero technique. He's a zero technique on the defensive line or a three technique or he's a wide nine. Okay, well, you know, sometimes you got to bring people back to earth here. What is the wide nine technique? Yeah. Well, he lines up all the way off the right tackle shoulder. You know, the outside shoulder of the right tackle, he lines up beyond that. So that makes him the wide nine. Well, most people aren't going to understand that. So you've got to be able to kind of – go through those processes and and make sure that people people kind of understand and you can do it occasionally but you got to be careful how how much you load in because really and does it become easier people, does it become easier to just say he's lined up wide so to speak or he, he's, he's got yeah. a wide stance yeah, yeah he's, he's you know like the carolina panthers are famous for putting julius peppers out wide beyond you know the right tackle ryan schrader yeah so julius peppers is out wide on the left side against ryan schrader you know, but he's a, is he a nine technique? Yes, but he's way out wide type deal. Um, so you know, you gotta you gotta figure out. And he may line up as a nine on that play, but not a nine on the next play. So um, you know, there, there are all sorts of different little tricks to. And I think you just got to be careful how much you use the information. I mean, we can talk about route trees over and above. <laughs> you know, until we're you know until we're blue in the face. But not everybody knows what a nine cut is, a three cut, a five cut, you know, whatever those route trees are. But if you said somebody's on a post route or on a flag route or a sluggo, and that's what, see, Dave does such a good job of that on our broadcast with the Falcons, Joel, that it makes it, it makes it easy for me just to do the play because Dave's then going to break it down. Well, he got him on a sluggo, which is a slant and go. And see, again, this speaks to traction and continuity. We've been doing the game so long together now that I have I have pretty good working knowledge of what he's going to give me. He knows what I'm going to do, and it it just kind of meshes together. And I think that's that's part of our secret sauce, if you will, is that we kind of have that rhythm about our broadcast. It's funny too because I didn't even think about it until I was at our pro day this past year, and a guy named Jordan Williams Lambert who. who played with the Saints for a year and is now in Canada. Uh, he was back at our pro day to get some looks, and he was working with a, a guy who was coming out of a, a, a local college as a quarterback, and the guy said, all right, we're going to run a quick out. And Jordan stood there. He goes, what's a quick out? And he's like, right. what do you, he's like, what do you mean, what's a quick out? He's like, well, what is your quick out? Um, so it's like even within the language itself, you've got to be even specific, and it gets sure. really wonky in the weeds too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, um, on the television side of things, uh What's different for you? Um, do I mean, do you enjoy it more? Um, and and hmm. where is the challenge that um, that is different than radio? Obviously, people always say you got to learn to talk less and and how to talk less. 
but I feel like the last part of that is the most important because it's not just talking less, but it's how you talk less and where you choose to do it, isn't it? Sure. I think that's part of it. I think for me, um, you know, I was fortunate when, when I went to television full-time in 2013 after leaving, you know, after doing Georgia Tech for 18 years, I, I got several phone calls. And one of the biggest boosts I got was Mike Tirico called me. And we had interacted, you know, back when he did the Thursday night ESPN game um, years ago. And so we had kind of stayed in touch. And he was doing NBA playoffs on radio with John Barry when it was announced that I was going to TV. And he called me and said, hey, look, congratulations and, and that type of thing. And he said, you'll do a great job. And I said, well, anything. He said, no, anything I should know. And he said, no, just prepare like you prepare for radio. And I said, really? He said, oh, absolutely. He said, because you've got that process down and you're comfortable with it. He goes, if you prepare like you're doing a radio broadcast, you know, you'll be fine in terms of the way the information sets up. Your producer, your analyst, all those people will become comfortable with what you know, and you'll know how to get in and out because you've done radio. And I thought, well, that's the first time I'd heard radio as a, as a positive going to television. He said the trouble people get in is people that have been in TV and have never done radio. When they go the other way, yeah. it's harder because there's more preparation, there's more description, there's more, you know, kind of that vernacular, if you will, of getting into the broadcast. And the second year I was in television, I actually uh, was at the, I had to go to the, IMG invited me to do the SEC tournament on radio for them. I wasn't doing the ACC tournament that year for Raycom. So I went to the SEC tournament with IMG and did, you know, five games or something like that in three days. And um, the first basketball on radio I had done in like three years was at the SEC tournament. And I prepped for it like I would a normal radio broadcast or my normal preparation and got into it. And immediately in the first four to six minutes of the game, I thought, okay, I'm going a lot faster than I would on television because I'd only done TV for two years. And so the first thing I thought of was how fast that was moving. And, you know, you kind of got to catch yourself back up. And it didn't take longer than four or five minutes or two possessions, two media timeouts and that kind of thing. And, I felt pretty comfortable where the rest of the weekend went, but I knew exactly what Mike was talking about. That, that conversation from two and a half years earlier rang true right back to me was the speed of it. To answer your question, I think television is a big team game and I would encourage anybody who is getting into television to know your crews. If you can get involved with your producers, your directors, your font coordinators, your tape people, they're just as important as you are. They're just as I, you know, I just finished doing the ACC baseball tournament. Um, and we were so fortunate. We had a great crew, just a tremendous, tremendous crew that really buys into doing when we do 14 games in five days, Joel, I mean, (laughs) so, and I did eight of them and, you know, we mix and match analysts a little bit. I did most of my work with Jeff Francoeur. I did a couple games with Nick Green. Tom Wormy's the other play-by-play guy involved in the process. We have uh, Lindsey Rowley, who does uh, the Predators uh, sideline coverage, side-ice coverage, if you will. She's involved with us on the baseball. We're fortunate, good producers, good directors, tape people, the whole mind, font people. Really, really crucial. And I just invested. I, I enjoy the investment of being in a team for television. 
Um, it's a fun thing for me. Uh, you know, when, when one person wins, we kind of all win. Um, you know, and that's the thing I really have enjoyed about television, to be honest with you. The challenge of doing radio is, you know, for me, most of it now is the Atlanta Falcons. And as I told you at the top, I do, we're just so blessed to have a really good booth. I mean, we've been able to keep a booth together for 12 years in the NFL, and that's probably hard to do. Um, at least in my opinion, it's hard to do with just all the moving parts in our industry. But um, but I think that makes a big difference. Uh, to me, they're separate. I don't enjoy one more than the other. Uh, they're different challenges. Um, radio is a completely different discipline than TV. And even for me, believe it or not, college football and pro football are two different deals. Um, I see the games in two different lights all the time. I don't ever see them as – now, the rule book's getting similar – but the games themselves are very different. One takes three and a half hours. One can take two hours and 51 minutes. <laughs> um, college basketball is obviously very different. So, um, and baseball is, is different, obviously, too. So, but I enjoy, I enjoy it all. I, I, never, I never feel any kind of dread or regret to go to a game. Not at all. Even as fortunate as I've been to – to do this for as long as I have now, and hopefully for several more years too. How's your handicap right now? Uh, getting better. Taking a little <laughs> longer this year to get it to get it back where I need to. But uh, knock on wood, um, we need to stop raining. Need to stop raining. <laughs> I haven't been able to, but I understand that. But it's it's good. It's not uh, it's not awful. Um, I've broken eighty four times, so. Uh, I need to uh, I need to keep that train going, but uh, it was there were some ugly moments in April and May. Now I mean some ugly moments. There was a there was a ninety in early May. I'm not proud of a ninety one. My brother beat me senseless again. He's he's so good. Um, he grew up playing the game and uh, loves to play and doesn't hit it far, but hits it straight every freaking time. I mean just straight on a string. You couldn't pull string tight enough as straight as he hits it. <laughs> Well, let me tell you about the time I hit a 90 on the front nine, and it'll make you feel better about yourself. What? <laughs> no, you didn't. It takes a little. It takes a while. Uh, yeah. I, I've had a couple tens before. Um, I, I, I can get it on the fairway, and I can get it off the green, but it's the, it's the getting it from the one to the other that is the problem. I understand. Um, I, I hit a lot of four, six, three double plays. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> four, six, three double plays. Nice. I like so. that. Um, That's good. Wes, if people want to follow you, uh, how do they do it? Uh, the easiest way is at Wes Durham on Twitter and the IG, Joel. There you go. Yeah, I'm on, on the, the IG. The kids, they're, they're doing it. so it's Yeah, I got on the Instagram. I have 19-year-old twins. So <laughs> I was on the IG a few years ago because of my kids. Yeah. So, um, and I'm, I've got Snapchat. I'm lousy with it. <laughs> But I keep up with my kids, so there you go. that's good. Yeah. Uh, but no, I like Twitter. I think Twitter's uh, it, it's you know it's probably thirty three percent wasteland, thirty three percent information, and thirty three percent make you laugh. How's that? Yeah, that works. That works. Yeah. I'll tell you this about Instagram. So CrossFit, uh, they go through Instagram with a lot of their stuff. So yeah, I saw I'm, you doing some CrossFit on the Instagram last so, week. Yeah, so I'm doing the CrossFit Games regionals, and they put your Instagram handle on the ID, which is the first time that's ever happened for me. Um, Sweet. Usually it's your Twitter handle. But yeah. so over the last week, I have gotten followed by more uh, 
Spanish and Portuguese speaking uh, Latin American fitness people on my Instagram. And I'm like, y'all have no idea what you're in for. Like, you're just going to get a lot of pictures of me playing slow pitch softball and my dog. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And you're not going to understand any of the captions. Um, But more power to you. I'll take the follows. So (laughs) that's awesome. It is what it is. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think. uh, Well, the other thing, too, is I'm fortunate that I'm just able to go with my name on both accounts. Yeah. And that's that's oftentimes pretty hard. Yeah. that I'm gathering from people, but, um, no, I enjoy social media. I think there's some good to it. Um, I've had fun with it. Um, I think people have gotten a kick out of, you know, whether it's games or golf or, you know, stuff here recently, I found some unbelievable pictures of my dad and things like that. I'll put up and yeah, that's been, that's been kind of neat for people to see. And, um, I got a few more of those in the hopper for, for the off season. And then once the season starts, we do, you know, I'll, I'll send charts out and things like that. Cause I think there are people in our industry that, yeah. you know, that like to see that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, and that's fun. I like the trade part of it from our business. I think it's, I think it's become a really cool piece of, of the, uh, of the broadcasting venture as well. All right. Way over on time with West Durham here this week. So we'll make it quick on the outro, but, uh, Good conversation. Fun conversation for me. Hopefully it flew by. It was a longer one than normal. But I just remember looking down at the timer on the recorder for the first time in that conversation, and it was at like 22 minutes. And then we just kept going, and we kept going. And as it got over an hour, I was like, all right, i got to wrap this up with him. Um, but I could go with Wes forever. Um, good talker, good mind uh, for the business, uh, and, and just a good person overall. So uh, glad that we uh, were able to sit down and have West Durham on. Love the perspective on the Super Bowl, um, just in terms of being the guy who's handling a team in an epic collapse and, and how, you, how you report that, for lack of a better way of saying it. Uh, how you handle that, how you broadcast it. Um, so, you know, everybody looks at what it's like for Bob Sosi to call the Super Bowl win. Uh, I was always very curious in the moment what it was like for West Durham to be in that booth as, uh, as the Falcons are having that epic, historic NFL collapse. And as Wes just said at the end there, if you want to find him on social media, you can hit him up at Wes Durham. Uh, next week's guest will be a fun one. Uh, he's a guy that doesn't broadcast anymore. He's retired, uh, but what a career he had. Uh, Bill Mercer will join us. Not just a broadcaster, but also a great influencer of current broadcasters in this field. Uh, Bill Mercer, a giant of broadcasting down in Texas. He is our guest next week on PXPCast. Love to have you join us next week and every Friday morning. It's PXPCast right here on iTunes, Stitcher, and right in your phone. We're playing the music, which means we got to get up on out of here. Talk to you next week. See ya. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.